The Heli Caster Jane Show airs Wednesdays, 3 p.m. Eastern. The podcast always available online at HeliCasterJane.com. Mike Nichols and Elaine May. Hello. Hello, Arthur. This is your mother. Do you remember me? <laughs> Mom, I was just going to call you. Is that a funny thing? Do you know that I had my hand Arthur, on the phone? You were was... supposed to call me last uh, Friday. Mother, honey, I know. I just didn't have a second and I could cut my Arthur, throat. I was. I sat I... by that phone uh, all day Friday. Uh, honey, I was working. And I just all day have... Friday night. Darling, I was in the lab. And all and I... day Saturday. Mom, I, I and could... all day Sunday. Mom, And I... your father finally said to me, Phyllis, eat something, you'll faint. I said, no, Harry, no. I don't want my mouth to be full when my son calls it. Oh, the genius of Mike Nichols and Elaine May. And oh, to know that in a way, they are back together again. That's right. Friday, January 29th, 9 p.m. Eastern, on your PBS stations, an amazing documentary airs, Mike Nichols' American Masters, which, by the way, launches the 30th anniversary season of 13's American Masters series. And, after a 29-year absence from behind the camera, Elaine May directs this extraordinary study of her comedic partner, the great director, Mike Nichols. Today on the Hallicaster Jane Show, the man who brought it all together, producer Julian Schlossberg, a longtime friend of both Nichols and May, and himself an entertainment icon, and quite the raconteur, as you are about to learn when he joins me at my table on the Hallicaster Jane Show. Hi, and welcome. Thank you so much for being here. I am your host, Hallicaster Jane. But before we begin, today, the Hallicaster Chain Show is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Get a free audiobook and 30-day trial today by visiting my website at HallicasterChain.com and clicking on the Audible.com icon for your free book. That's right, I said free. Hey, what's more fun than a free book? And remember... The Hallie Jane Show is always available online at HallieCasserJane.com and a host of venues, including Stitcher.com, Spreaker.com, TuneIn Radio, iTunes, Blog Talk Radio, and on the iHeart Radio Network. To some, the name Julian Schlossberg might be unfamiliar. To others in the entertainment business, Schlossberg is an icon. He's an award-winning theater, film, and television producer. For TV, he's produced for HBO, AMC, and PBS, including American Masters, Nichols and May, Take Two, and American Masters, The Lives of Lillian Hellman. Plays produced by Schlossberg have earned many honors, including six Tony Awards, two Obie Awards, seven Drama Desk Awards, and five Outer Critics Circle Awards, among them Bullets Over Broadway and Fortune's Fool. He also produced six of Elaine May's plays, 
Relatively Speaking, Adult Entertainment, After the Night in the Music, Power Plays, and more. Widow's Peak, In the Spirit, and the documentary No Nukes are among his film production credits. He's also the founder of film production and distribution companies Castle Hill Productions, Jumer Productions, and Westchester Films, including features by Ilya Kazan, John Cassavetes, Orson Welles, Woody Allen, and more. With partner Danny Goldberg, he founded Gold Castle Records, whose artists include Peter, Paul, and Mary, and Joan Baez. His early career included positions at ABC and Paramount and hosting the nationally syndicated radio program Movie Talk, as well as its local television companion series. Now, Schlossberg repositions his producer cap, one he wears quite well, which you'll see Friday, January 29th at 9 p.m. when PBS premieres Mike Nichols' American Masters, the film directed by Mike Nichols' partner in comedy, Elaine May, which launches the 30th anniversary season of 13's American Masters series. Let's talk. Julian, Julian. Yes, ma'am. Lucky me. Lucky, lucky Hallie. I got to see this show of yours, Nichols, and wow, in a word, riveting. Oh. Really? Thank you. I really mean that. It's such an intimate portrait. It's like an insider's look. Mike Nichols, yeah. such a good friend of yours. How do, I don't even know how. How did you guys get together? I was ostensibly running the Walter Reed Theaters, which was a chain throughout the United States, but rather big in New York City. And he had made a movie, and uh, he wanted, as, in those days, you only opened one theater. He didn't do what you do now with 5,000 theaters open at the same time. You opened one theater in New York City, and that set the pattern for the movie not just for the New York area, not just for the United States, but for the world. It was very strange when you look back and see. But anyhow, I had this theaters called the Baronet and Coronet in New York, and they were very, very valuable. Everybody wanted them. And, and Mike was making a movie with two giant movie stars at that time, was Warren Beatty and Jack Nicholson. <laughs> and it was going to be a comedy. And Mike was hot as hell. And I thought, wow, this is going to be something. And... I got a call from him. Really? And he said, I love, I love the coronet. Can I get it? And I said, you got it. Wow. <laughs> you have it. No, it's truly amazing when you think about it in those days how different it is now in the motion picture distribution business. Absolutely. But anyhow, that, that, that's how, how we met and we became friends and uh, we spent time together and uh, I ended up representing Mike and Elaine on all their material as uh, uh, their, their CDs. At that time, they weren't called CDs, their albums and their footage. They had a lot of shows that they did when they first were discovered on network television. And they did Dinah Shaw, Steve Allen, Jack Parr, a lot of a lot of shows. And so we ended up uh, being not only friends, but I guess in a way partners. Right. You know, you really did give us a look behind the mask that our consummate entertainers so often wear. That's why I really like this. The opening, when Nichols talks about his German roots. He tried to hide his feelings behind his comedy, but you hung in there in that interview. Got to give you credit for that. Mike Nichols was born, I don't know a lot of people know this, Miguel Igor Peshkowski. Nice Jewish yes. girl tries to say nice mm -hmm. Jewish name, not so well. In 1931 in Berlin, and of course left Germany just as World War II was breaking out. Just that fact alone, Julian, had a, had a huge impact on him, right? Oh, tremendous. And, and when you think about it, I mean, here's a man who does not come to this country till he's seven years old, so he speaks no English whatsoever except two sentences, I can't speak English, and please don't kiss me. <laughs> 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 you 
he was he was smart enough to ask for that. He asked how you could say that in English because his two little kids traveling alone with a nurse uh, with a nursemaid coming to New York. His mother was ill and had to stay in Germany, and so he and his younger brother were being met at the uh, New York by their father, who was a doctor. So, so and, he, uh, go ahead. Do you want to? Have, is there no, more? I, them? I'm just going to say, and they traveled alone. Right. Except for this nursemaid. Exactly. Yeah. Here's what I want to ask you about, and that is, he wasn't known as a Jewish comedian, or Jewish anything other than, you know, he was Jewish. But how much did his Jewishness show up in his work, do you think? What what part did it play in his... Well, I think Nichols and May certainly was a lot. I mean, the the mother who who didn't want to be... didn't eat for the entire weekend <laughs> because she didn't want to have food in her mouth if her son called. You know? <laughs> Only a Jew would say something. You got that right. <laughs> I would say that what really more so than the Jewish was the was the European. The fact that he was an emigre, the fact that he came as an immigrant, that he didn't speak the language, that he was really uh, an oddball, uh, and, and and really he says on the show, which is so moving to me, he says, I I, I was very different from most of the people in high school, and I, I if I met them now, I wouldn't know why. I wouldn't want to know why, but I was an outcast, and he was until he got to the University of Chicago, uh, where he met a lot of a lot of people who were very much like him. Uh, who who were very well read, who were very interested in music. Um, he was very much on his own, and then he found this whole group of people, and some of them became extremely famous. Like Ed Ed Asner was one of those people, and uh, a wonderful actress named Zora Lampert, and and and, and many others. Uh, it was an interesting time for him. And the University of Chicago, he started to fly at that point. Funny, Zora Lampert, but I haven't heard that name in for. Wasn't she on the nurses? How far back do I go? That's right. I think. I think. Well, maybe that's Zena Beth Hume. No, they, yeah, her too, right? I, it's, I mean, there's yeah. so many Z's, and there's only two, I think. Oh no, Zazu Pitt. Oh, there's another one. There you go, the Z ladies. I love it. Okay, like right, but props into your brain. So listen to me on this one. In this document, I, well, no, maybe I'm going to go in a different direction completely. Now I'm going to freak you out totally. Okay, I'm going to okay, take. A, you can make a U-turn. I'm making a big one. Here's my U-turn. I'm taking you off of the show for a second. I want to talk about you. Oh, what could be better for me than that? <laughs> Why did I think you would say that, but not? But listen to me. I mean, we are talking here to talk about Nichols and the documentary on American Masters called Nichols. But you... On Friday night, can I say? Yes, on Friday night, you can say. And I'm going to have a lot in here January 29th. And look at, go to pbs.org to find out where your local station exactly. But listen to me, you... What a career! Oh my gosh, you were born in. <laughs> Is that in a question mark? <laughs> no, that's a that's a like my eyes like just you know go huge open when I run across somebody like you. Seriously, oh, you're very you're very kind. I thought you were going to say you had a career, Taka. <laughs> 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 yes, Taka, no, I, I wasn't been, going I've been there. One of those people who did a lot of things. Well, they used to call it the jack of all trades and master of none. <laughs> no, I think you but, mastered uh, some of them pretty darn well. But I want to say, talk a little bit about you. I want you were born in New York City. You sent in the army. Yeah. New York University graduated with honors. Got that. But what about your love of culture and theater and films? Where did that come from? And and and, and most people say, when I grow up, listen to me, I want to be a doctor or a fire person, as we say today, or an actor. I, I don't know many who grew up saying, I want to be a producer. I mean, 
Well, I certainly didn't. I wasn't one of them who said that either. I just knew the one thing I knew I had to get into show business. I, that was the only thing I was sure of. What I was going to do in show business, I had no idea. But I was so, you have to remember at my age, I went from radio to television. There was no television right. as a kid until I got a little older. So what radio did for you, which was so extraordinary, was make your imagination. You're out on the plains with the Lone Ranger. I mean, you're, you're, you're getting scared. You're in a haunted house with the shadow. I mean, you, you've got things going on. You've created such incredible things in your head. While television kind of spoon-fed you, you could see it, you could watch it, you could feel it, but radio was really something. So I knew I had to be part of this. What I was going to do, I had no idea. My background was history. I've been a history major. I love history. I still do. And uh, often I'll, I'll, I'll do a historical project because of my love for it. I, my, one of my very early plays on Broadway I did with Vanessa Redgrave and Eileen Atkins called Vita and Virginia about the relationship of Virginia Woolf and Vita Sackville West. And uh, it was an incredible triumph uh, off-Broadway for the two of them. I said Broadway, but it was off-Broadway. It was the largest off-Broadway theater at the time, and we sold out every performance from the time they opened till the time we closed. It's an amazing uh, amazing evening. But that's all history for me, and it's um, I, I loved it. So to answer your question, I loved show business. I think radio did it. My father did too. He wasn't he was a salesman. He wasn't in show business, but he had a he had a great love for it. My mother was an educator, and she had no great love for it at all. <laughs> <laughs> and probably thought, my son, my son, oh, yeah, yeah, my son, he's going into show business, right? Yeah, I mean, like, believe oh. me, she, she wanted her son to be an accountant. <laughs> <laughs> don't they all? Don't all Jewish mothers want their mom Well, no, I mean, I, 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 how about a doctor? Why not a doctor? <laughs> <laughs> show business. Probably didn't think I had the ability. But, uh, but yeah. nonetheless, it was, a, it was a very exciting time because when television, started to come in, and I was so kind of uh, enamored of it all, I would be able to find ways to go downtown. I lived in the Bronx. I'd go downtown, and I would see the Perry Como dress rehearsal. They literally every week had a dress rehearsal for the public before they went live. And I would go every week, watch the dress rehearsal, run home to New York, uh, to my home, and watch the show to see what changed between the dress rehearsal oh, and wow. the rehearsal wow. I mean, and, and, and the show. I mean, that's not exactly <laughs> the typical way you're supposed to be living <laughs> as a young kid. But that really interested you me. You were possessed. And, uh, uh, I remember that very well, and I would be a, 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 a studio audience member as much as I could on weekends or, or, or on the, in the summertime or during the holidays. I would always try to get to that place. What studio? I knew where Ernie Kovac's show came from. I knew where the Arthur Gottfried. I mean, I knew where these shows were being broadcast from, wow. and I got to know the pages there, and they got a kick out of me. And so I was very uh, involved with it right from the beginning. Fascinating. So, darling, listen to me. What the hell does a producer do? <laughs> what, what, what is your job? Yeah, what's your job description? You know, when I said you were going to be on the show, and who is he? He's the besides all the things that you did, he's the producer of the. What does a producer do? Everybody thinks they know what a well, producer that's a, does. It's a very good question because very few people, unless you do it, know what a producer does. Because mm -hmm. a producer, there's so many different kinds. You go to Broadway now and you'll see 35 names as producers. 33 of them wrote a check. That's all they did. <laughs> They wrote a check. 
and now they're needed. But when I was a kid, and maybe when you were, we used to call them angels, right. and they had no had no billing. But after a while, the shows got so expensive that they said, "Hey, if I'm putting up a half a million dollars, I want to see my name up there." And so that's one kind of producer, which I would call not truly a producer. The real producer is someone who finds the material. What is it going to be? Is it going to be a book? Is it going to be a play? Is it going to be a screenplay? What is it that I, that you've fallen in love with if you're a producer? And from that, you try to hire a director. And from the director, you cast your show or movie or theater. You also have to raise the money. You have to get involved in the advertising. You must get involved with the promotion. You must be involved in all aspects of it if you're going to be a good producer or it's called a hands-on producer. One of the best producers in the country now is a, is a man named Scott Rudin, who's just a top, top producer. But it's very interesting, and as important as that job should be or could be, it's not known by the public. You know, In fact, the public doesn't really know very much about many directors, let alone producers, and the director is the person who's out there having the final word often on casting and also the person who's going to put the people through their paces, the actors. Uh, Thank you for taking me to that segue. I've worked with, um, you know, Mike and Woody Allen and Elaine May and a lot of people, and fortunately I, I have some input. But by and large, while I may, let's say, own the ship, I've hired the captain, and they're the captain of the ship, the director. Fascinating job oh. you have. Fascinating job you have. And I'm segueing because I'm watching that clock, and I'm going to get every question that I want to ask into this interview if it kills me. Do you hear me? Because <laughs> there are no it's such I'm fun people to talk to. I'm available for Don't worry. Call back. Call okay. back. <laughs> Call back, then I'll slow down. So, but here, you, you, made, you made a segue into uh, back to the director, so let's talk a little bit more about Nichols. Um, it's true that all of us, right, everyone we know, has a different sense about who we are, right? Yeah. I might like, yeah. I see you one way, somebody else sees you another way, somebody else sees me another way. And you, you have a lot of people talking about Nichols in this piece, but, but before I get into them, I want to ask you this question. How did he see Nichols? Did he get his own self? Did he understand himself? Well, that's a good question, but I'm not sure I have a good answer. Um, he, I, I would say that he did do a lot of self uh, reflecting, I think it was important that he, that anybody does. I mean, whether they say an unexamined life is not worth living. Right. Uh, so I think he did. I think that he was. Uh, I don't think he ever totally got over being uh, a man from Europe and being somewhat quote an outsider. But I think at the end of his last twenty to thirty years, when he found Diane Sawyer. It was an extraordinarily happy marriage, and I think he finally got the peace that he wanted to have as a person. He certainly had fame and fortune, but as we both know, because we both know people who have both fame and fortune, that does not equal happiness. Right, right. And I would say that, Mike, the last 20 years that I knew him, up to 40, he was the happiest because of Diane. Well, that says a lot, doesn't it? I mean, he found happiness. Uh, I mean, that's all we all want at the end. You know, we think we're going after one dream and after another dream, and at the end of the day, really, all we really ever want is happiness. I mean, it's just... Well, true. I mean, and, and it's so sad because there are people who are truly insatiable. Right. And no matter what, they want more and more and more. And you're very, one is very fortunate if you can say, gee, I did okay. I'm pretty happy with the way it turned out. I could have done this. I could have done that. But Danny Thomas was a, a friend and he, a great comedian. And he Loved said, him. 
in life, you must be very, very careful. At that point, he said Indians, we'd have to say Native Americans, but he said you must be careful of the tribes, the couldas, the wouldas, and the shouldas. <laughs> what a great quote. Wow. <laughs> Got to remember that one. Listen to me. You brought up Second City and the Compass Players, I should say, actually, and, and the Chicago area, uh, part of, of, of Nichols and May. But talk to me a little bit about this. He didn't think he was good, and you bring this up in the show. He didn't think he was good at the very thing that made him so successful in improvisation. That killed me. Well, yes, because it was new to him. He Remember, he came in, and again, he had, had this strange childhood, which was not very happy, and he's now being told to do what a lot of people can do very easily, which was improvise. But he was so smart, so talented, so creative, that once he got it, once he was able to see it, he just soared. And, and, and I've seen that occasionally uh, with people, even writers sometimes, who, who kind of flounder around, and then you kind of, if you're lucky enough to be able to say, why don't you consider doing this in a butcher shop? And all of a sudden, that somehow the butcher shop got them, and they know how to write about loin of pork. I mean, it's an amazing thing. Uh, uh, so I think what's so wonderful about his interview I feel that he, the way he speaks, is that he's so honest about himself and is so willing to say, I was stranger than they were. Um, uh, the, the, when Elaine May left the act, it was the worst thing that ever happened to me in my life. I was a terrible improviser. I, I went seven years without making a movie. People said I was scared. I said, bull. But maybe I was scared. I mean, these are terrific things. When people that talented and that smart are able to be, I think, you know, that, uh, that ability to say, uh, the truth, and as we, as you pointed out earlier, Hallie, it's it's truly really true that people, especially famous people, uh, have a persona that whether it's them or not, it's the, they've practiced it so that I'm not sure they even know who the real person is. And that was so great about Mike on this interview. I really knew that he was talking from the heart. Yeah. So I'm very pleased about that. And I see, was a little yeah. part of that, a catalyst at best. At, at least at, at best, because really that's what makes us so different than a lot of other portraits of, of famous people that one might watch. And this is also fascinating. This thing with improv, and I did some acting, you know, we all start out acting. Oh, my God. Um, it's a shoot from the hip. It's a, It's an emotional game. But at the same time, it has to be cerebral because you have to shoot on all cylinders. So you have to be watching yourself, watching your partner, watching the scene develop. You know the gig. Yes. You've got to see the big picture when you're in the middle of the picture, so to speak. You have to be a genius to do that well. And that's what yeah. it is, right? Well, he and Elaine were, were geniuses. Elaine still is, and Mike was, and there's no question. I mean, when they, at the end of their show... People really thought they were having a fight because uh, they would do what they ended up by saying, this is Pirandello. But they were really able to have the audience. There was a time at the end of every show where you could call, they said, call out a uh, an author's name and, uh, and a situation and we'll do that author and that situation in the way the author would do it. People would yell out Shakespeare or Moliere, and they would actually do a whole sketch that way. It was really amazing. Right. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about this genius. Uh, this 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 was something revealed in your, your show. I didn't know. Between the ages of 12 and 13, he read every word Eugene O'Neill had ever <laughs> written. I mean, give me a break. Give me a break. I mean... So talk to me about this. How did it feel to be in the company of such a genius? I mean, because he, he was a genius. You could tell he, just he looking was. at him. 
he was. I mean, that old, as he says, that old dabble C. How much could I take of that old dabble C uh, when O'Neill's writing? But the truth was that you would spend time, or I would spend time, anybody who would spend time with Mike would leave and know that you've learned something. I mean, I remember, I remember this so well. We were talking about a particular play, and he said, did you ever hear the difference between plot and story? I said, oh, no, that's really, he said, oh, no, I read this. He said, it's really interesting. He said, the plot is the king is dead, the queen is dead. He said, the story is the king is dead, the queen is dead of a broken heart. Hmm. I thought, wow, how interesting, how interesting. Wouldn't it have been fun to spend a few hours in his brain? Just oh, riding along the synapses, right? Every time I right? had that opportunity, there was nothing better. And this interview that you'll see is broken down from a two-hour interview. It was two hours. Really? Did it. But, of course, some of the stuff were... <laughs> yeah. We were playing with each other, getting around <laughs> that I couldn't put on the air. <laughs> Boy, wouldn't I like to have seen that? But listen to well, me. The outtakes are funny. I bet they are. That's a show in of itself. But let me go here with you. You know, there's another Jewish thing that comes to mind. You and I are both Jewish. We can say this, right? And here it is. I've never met a Jew who doesn't go for for fame and fortune or success or being the best at what they, they are so hard on themselves. Mama's voice is always in the head. Darling, you can do a better job. That's just not good enough. You, when I watched that interview, particularly in the very beginning, and I watched his face, you're off camera, the way the shoot, you know, it's just a single camera, boom, on him for so long. And I'm watching that, and I'm saying to myself, this guy looks like a guy who just ate himself up alive to get to perfection. Well, I, I think, I think, uh, I think, Possibly when they were doing the show, Mike and Elaine, but after that, I mean, he certainly, he, he, he was clearly a renaissance man. He was clearly a person who wanted things to be right and do well, but I don't think, I would never, I do not feel he ate himself up from that at all. I no, don't. really. I mean, but, you know, someone else might disagree. Uh, I never felt that. I felt he was extremely comfortable in direct directing. Uh, how he was alone, obviously, I wouldn't know. Yeah. So, no, I, I guess mean, it was I would just... say that he was in show business. He was the smartest man I ever met. Oh, that's a hell of a statement. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah. pretty good. That's pretty good. I'd take that if somebody said that about me. It just seemed to me he almost had to fight out of getting in his own way, particularly in the in, in the in the Nichols May years. You know, but he was young then too, so we all grow up. You, it's you, true. But he had the ability to be able to talk with you, and unwittingly, you realized you were being educated. I mean, it was just amazing. It just was an amazing thing. I mean, I really am reasonably well-read and I'm reasonably intelligent, but I knew there was not, not even close. And and I always felt that I left the meeting, a lunch or a dinner, having learned something. Wow, that's, a pretty, that's pretty amazing. In awe. You sound like you were in awe. Were you in awe? Well, I certainly started out in awe, but I think after you know anybody for 40 years, <laughs> the awe, the awe, the awe kind of fizzles. You know? But I certainly, I would say maybe for the first 10 or 12 years, maybe. <laughs> oh, fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. You brought it up, but I wanted to go into this a little bit. When they broke up, he was devastated, and he talks candidly about that. How did that sadness help shape his future? Because I think, you know... It did. Well, I think it was very, very tough on him. And uh, and it was tough on Elaine, too. But I think even tougher on him because he did not want to stop and she desperately wanted to. And I think that's what happened. So that I think he wasn't in any way exaggerating when he said in many ways it was the worst thing that ever happened to him. 
because you know he was a part he was losing half of himself in a way they had been partners for years and they had become huge successes and now he was out on his own um but he was so erudite and often so joyous to be around and so funny i remember we were having lunch once and i said to him there's a new movie on joan of arc have you seen it and he looked at me and said, no, I, no, he's talking that way, no, I haven't seen it. He said, but I bet you half the people in the country think that Joan was married to Noah. <laughs> <laughs> and the ability to do that off the top of your head, to do, <laughs> knock these things out, are so, was so incredible to me. And uh, I, I, I always knew that there would be a come, come a time in the meeting, the lunch, or the dinner where I would laugh hysterically. Yeah, I and love that. I, I never was disappointed. I love that. Imagine if he had known, though, at the time that they broke up, when that door closed, the size of the room behind the door that would open to him, right? I mean, the theater oh, directing and a new partner of sorts with Neil Simon. Take us through that, the Broadway Simon years. I mean, you include some footage of Neil Simon talking about Nichols. Um, Simon's perception of the man that would make him a household name, really, was, you know, yeah. the Tony-winning threesome. Oh, my God. Well, my... What was so amazing to me, Helly, really amazing, was the fact that here is a guy who never directed in his life, goes and directs his first Broadway play, and it's Bathurst in the Park, <laughs> and he wins a Tony. He then comes back the following season and directs Love, L-U-V, and he wins the Tony. He comes back the third year and does The Odd Couple, probably the biggest, most successful comedy ever. And he wins the Tony. He then gets called by the studios to do a movie. He does Virginia Woolf, which gets nominated for five Academy Awards, and then follows it up with The Graduate, where not only is it the highest grossing movie of the year, but he also wins the Academy Award, the Oscar. Those are his first five <laughs> directing. And he used to say, and it's really funny, he used to say, I have to have a failure here. This is ridiculous. This cannot go on. And in a peculiar way, as sad as it was on Catch-22, in a way he was relieved. It was a, in a way he was relieved that, okay, finally, enough is enough. I'm not the golden boy. I'm not invincible. This has got to happen. And it did with Catch-22. The irony of it is, and I know I sound like some sort of an apologist, but I wouldn't say every movie he made was great, but Catch-22 is a very good movie, but came out in the height of the Vietnam War. Right, right. So I don't think people were really prepared for another war movie, even though it was World War II. Also, it was one of the great books of the 20th century, Joseph Heller's book, and it had to be distilled down, uh, distilled to, you know, I don't know, an hour and 40 minutes from, you know, six, seven, eight hundred pages. So it's always tough when you do that. So I, if viewed today, if people would view today Catch-22, they'll see a very, very good movie. I love that film. I, 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 I didn't understand why that didn't. Well, but I did, and we do. Yeah. Looking back, I don't know what the time. I was pretty young at the time, but I thought it was a good yeah. film even then. I remember that. This is interesting to me also. I have to talk to you about this. I mean, when, when you talk about him going from Broadway and the Three Tonys and, 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 and from Neil Simon, from Neil Simon to 
to Edward Alvey. Oh, my God. And who is afraid of Virginia Woolf and working with and, and, and Harold Pinter and Howard. Right. And working with the with the likes of, you know, two of the grand the grand, you know, divas diva. What would you call a guy diva? Um, yeah. But with with Taylor and Burton, I mean, such a giant leap. He didn't even how did he learn even how to hold the camera? I mean, a camera that that well, the this is new. Well, you have this to new. With the fact that he uh, Burton was on Broadway doing Hamlet next to Mike and Elaine doing the Golden Theater. <laughs> so they they would go out together and have dinners and lunches and got to know each other. And that's how he became the director. That they the Burton said we want Nichols to direct. Now, he did have this incredible reputation of, of being this director who could take his first three plays and win the Tony every year, unheard of and probably will never happen again. So they had that going for him. But he didn't know much about cameras or lenses, but he did know story and he did know acting. And, you know, Virginia Woolf wasn't a big movie as far as many locations. You were pretty much stuck in that house. Uh, they, they went outside and I think they did one scene in a roadhouse. But that was it. It was a very interior shoot. And based on that, I think uh, he was confident that he could do it. And of course he did. Oh God, he did. And he did brilliantly, brilliantly, brilliantly. Listen to some of his uh, films, folks, if you don't know. I can't imagine you don't, but let's just throw them out. Graduate, Catch-22, Carnal Knowledge, Silkwood, Working Girl, The Birdcage, Charlie Wilson's War. Wow, right? I mean, like, you know, it's you can't even get it out. Of and, and you can't, don't forget films like the, the Biloxi Blues, right. and Primary Colors, and there's so many. In fact, Primary Colors and The Birdcage was Mike and Elaine together again. Right. Elaine wrote the screenplay to The Birdcage, and she wrote the screenplay to Primary Colors, and that particular screenplay of Primary Colors won the British Academy Award. I mean, it's just, yeah, right. Like the guy just, whatever he touched, turned to gold. But here's my question to you. You spent all this time putting this thing together. You've studied this guy. You've known him. You knew him for so so well. Why were his films, why were his films so successful? Which one? Any of them. I mean, there there had to be something. What what was it that he had that he brought to those films that whatever he touched pretty much turned to gold? Yeah, he had a couple of didn't go so. But by and large, you knew a Mike Nichols film. You wanted to see a Mike Nichols film. You loved Mike Nichols films. There there had to but be you knew something. It, you knew it was going to be an intelligent film. You knew it was going to be cast well. And you certainly knew that it was going to be an interesting story and a story that would resonate, hopefully, with you as a, as a viewer. Uh, whether it was shining a mirror on our society, a la carnal knowledge, or Silkwood, or The Graduate. I mean, many of these films really were almost telling you what was going on in your world as it was happening. Most movies don't do that. Most movies don't give you that. They give you either a, a Western or a comedy or whatever it might be, but they don't necessarily hit the subject of what's happening in your society. Thank goodness now we're doing that much more. But in the 60s and 70s, that was not common knowledge. It wasn't happening. It was happening with European film directors, Truffaut and uh, Godard and uh, Fellini and uh, Bergman often would do that, give us a mature, adult, sophisticated film. We didn't do that in this country until recently, the last 20, 30 years. So I think you knew you could rely on the fact that it would be an intelligent movie. It would be a beautifully shot movie because, you know, you look at those sets, those costumes, impeccable, just impeccable. His taste. 
taste was extraordinary. And even when you went to his home, his taste was extraordinary. Every He just had it. I mean, I really sound like somebody who put him on a pedestal, but the truth of the matter is, as, as you saw in the show, the best in the business think he's the best. So... Fascinating uh, he, guy. He just was. He just right. was. But let me take a break here. You're listening to the Hallie Caster Jane Show, and I'm talking with Julian Schlossberg, who has produced just a gorgeous piece of work on Mike Nichols that's going to be on American Masters on January 29th, 9 p.m. PBS. Check your local stations. We're going to be back in a second after a quick break, and when we do, more about Mike Nichols with Julian Schlossberg. Hi, this is Hallie Caster Jane. Are you enjoying the show? I hope so. And I hope that you'll tell your friends about it and help us grow our family. How can you help? That's easy. Share the link to the show with your friends or my show's player. And I would love it even more if you'd recommend they visit my website at HallieKesserJane.com. I look forward to seeing all of you there. Okay, Julian, we're back. Hi. Oh, I'm so glad it was so long. (laughs) (laughs) But here we are. But here we are. So listen to me. Two of the interviews you include in the show, Dustin Hoffman and Meryl Streep, powerful, potent interviews, both of those, short, sweet, but powerful. From your perspective, he understood actors. What do you think that was? That's what they say. Was it that he understood actors or that he made amazing insight into people in general? I think those two things, both, and I also think that he studied. Remember, he he left the University of Chicago, he left the improvisational group, goes to New York and studies with Strasbourg and Kazan, and they both have tremendous influences on him. He's studying their their techniques. What is the key element of the scene? What's the key of this scene? So, and, and Kazan says you've got to turn psychology into behavior. These are his mantras. He he really takes what both Strasberg and Kazan have to say about acting and really applies it. Plus, as we said earlier, he was an actor. He had acted. He even played the Dauphin to, <laughs> in St. Joan up at the Vancouver Festival. I mean, he, he had an idea what it was to be an actor. And he had an interesting thing that he said. He said it for himself, not for anybody else. He said, I find myself as an actor often I'm a baby. But as a director, I'm the parent. Right. And I like, and I'd rather be the parent. Fascinating so, line. Insightful. We lost, a, we lost a good actor, but we gained a great director. A, a better than great, fantastic. But yeah. you know, here's the thing. You know, okay, we've established actors adored him. I mean, there are a whole yeah. host of people in this that, that that you can see that with. And we just talked about whether they understood him or he understood them. But you know, there's more here. He had an instinct. That's the one thread that you see throughout throughout everything that he ever does. His instincts were cast in gold. I swear to God, it was just so bizarre to watch. And he knew how to get that gold. The instinct, yes, he did. right he out did. of. And what was so interesting to be on the set? I've been on the many sets, of course, because I've produced a lot of movies and also visited friends. Uh, director, there's a, you have to be talked about different kinds of producers. There's different kinds of directors, especially these days. There's a director these days, many of them, who have no idea about the script or actors, but they're fantastic with the camera, unbelievable with the lights, but they don't really, right. they can't help an actor. They can't help an actor. Then there's an, the other kind, like Mike, who really was great on writing and on on actors, but also knew the lenses and knew the lighting, but he knew that the essence of a good movie or a play is the story and the acting. That's that's the essence of it. And so what he would do 
many actors, many directors would say at the end of a take, oh, that was very good, just do it a little faster. Mike rarely said that. But Mike would say, well, let's sit down and talk. And he would sit down with an actor, and he would tell them a story about his life. But in that story, and he knew which actors to do that with, in that story he was directing. He was explaining something about his life or a story that he heard, but it was perfect for what the actor had to do to make the adjustment when he did the next the, next, the scene the next time. And remember, uh, this is not on Mike, this is on John Huston. I, John Huston was uh, someone I did a long interview with as well. And Eli Wallach was doing the uh, film The Misfits with Marilyn Monroe mm-hmm. and Clark Gable. And he, in the scene, he has to be drunk. And uh, Eli is weaving all over and slurring his words. And Houston yells, cut, cut. And he says, Eli, come here. He said, do you remember yesterday when I was working with you? He said, sure. He said, I was drunk. And Eli knew in two seconds, calm down. Don't let them know you're drunk. But just make sure you show that you're drunk in a very subtle way. And that's, that was what Mike would do. He would do something just like that. By the way, writers liked him, too. I like what Neil Simon said. Yes. Right? Talk about that. You mean what he said? He was the smartest man I ever met? He said that, and the other two said that he, he was right nine out of ten times. Nine, nine out of ten times, yeah. <laughs> but he would also do what he said with humor, that he would make you laugh while he was giving you the note. Right. He, you would, have, make you, it, he right. would be entertaining. So Mike was a terrific man, a great ability to influence and uh, get someone to, to get what he wanted, which, of course, is what we all want to do in life, don't we? Yeah, I'd like to have spent taking some lessons from him. There's a great Jack Warner story in this piece that you did. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was laughing my, my head. Favorite, favorite parts, but that I don't want to give away if you don't mind. No, no, no. But I just, I just, I wanted to make sure that people know that there is a great Hear me? I'm going to say it again. A great Jack Warner story in this piece that is worth watching the entire hour, which is worth it anyway, because it's that good. I mean, I love I see these are like little pieces of history that are, you know, that you captured that are going to be there for all of us to see and know forever and ever that we never would have known if you hadn't put this as Mr. Producer together, Julian. So thank you. I'm very pleased about that. And I I must say that I've been lucky enough that I've done hundreds of interviews because I was on the air for many years in New York and it was syndicated around the country. And um, the Library of Congress have recently asked for all my (gasps) interviews. So I'm very excited about that. I'm going to be giving them to them probably the end of next year. Oh, that's exciting. That's great stuff. Yeah. That should happen to me, and, and, my friend. And that's where I say that's where John Houston is and Betty Davis oh, and all these Lord. incredible people who came on and talked about their life and were very, very often very candid. Julian, you going to write a book? Well. You going to write a book? Well, I I actually have written my story, so to speak, but there's not enough of a market for my story until I get a show on the air that I've been working on since my bar mitzvah. <laughs> <laughs> Or, or show it seems. So it seems. I've interviewed 150 of the most prominent people on the planet. Right. Um, uh, about the 20th century, called Witnesses to the 20th Century. And fortunately, once again, Elaine May has written the commentary. And uh, we interview everybody. I mean, everybody from former President George H.W. Bush to Sandra Day O'Connor to uh, seven secretaries of state and Arthur Miller and just unbelievable people in every field and I'm hoping it, if I get that show on the air 
then there'll be an interest in who was the man who was able to get all these people to sit down and speak so candidly. I don't know. I don't think you have to wait that long. Those of us in the... You are brilliant. You're a book publisher. (laughs) Well, I'll do what I can, my friend, to help you get it out there, because I think with the right title, anybody would want to read it, because you really are a treasure trove. Of of story. I mean, it's it's just extraordinary to me, you know. Not since Uncle Remus. The problem is, if you have a young audience, will they know what Uncle Remus is? Well, if they don't, idea who Zazu was. (laughs) If they don't, they should. They should look it up. 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 See, that's what's really important about life. You know, you got to keep talking these names and bringing it up. Another, another, another rat hole. I wanted to go down with you on about Nichols. There is a big difference between. I wish we'd put it another way, but all right. Listen, I'm not a rat hole. You know where that came from? I'll tell you where that just came from now. I have a palm tree. Sounds like, sounds like the Bronx to me. <laughs> you it's, it's Manhattan. No, it's Florida. I have a palm tree right outside my yeah. office window that has coconuts that are about to fall down and kill one of us if somebody doesn't climb up and bring them and shimmy them down. This is the true story. So we, I told you we've been having this freezing cold weather. I look out the window the other day. There's a friigging rat up on my tree oh. trying to get my coconut. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Can you and imagine? No wonder they call him a rat. <laughs> <laughs> That's outrageous. That's our job in New York City. That's our job. We're in charge of rats pulling pizza slices across the... I live on the... Did you see that on the television? Yes, I did. It's a great one. Yeah. I love that. Ed. The the I live in the water. Rats live in, in palm trees. People don't know that until they move to the water and they find out because they want to wait for the coconuts to come and get them. That's where they live. That's the warmest place that there is. So you just oh, learn something, too. But anyway, so we're going to go down that rat hole, okay? I well, you're taking, well, you've taken care of the waterfront property people now. <laughs> the real estate people will say, don't listen. Don't listen to her. It's beautiful on the water. Forget the rats. <laughs> Listen, you learn to put up with a lot just to look out and see the beautiful view. What can I tell you? It, it is beautiful. It's I had beautiful. A house on the ocean. Yeah, no, it's, it's beautiful. I, I did love it. No, no, no rat was going to get my ocean. <laughs> no, and we have land crabs up here too. Have you ever seen them? Not to digress. Oh, but I think certainly uh, horseshoe crabs. No. We had. We yeah, had well, we get crabs. land crabs, and they when 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 it rains a lot, and they because they, they live, you know, their 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 nests are in the ground, and they can't get there because yeah. they're drowning. They take over the buildings and they can like even get so many of them on your windows you can't see out your windows oh my god but at least they taste better than you can't eat them you can't eat them (laughs) you can't really you don't uh, some people do but you know not most people not 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 not, (laughs) just only savage aborigines (laughs) (laughs) this is really i i have to really let you go down the rat hole i'm shutting up yes ma'am it's not that important now. A lot of cheese down here. Gobble, gobble. I mean, gobble, gobble. I'm not going down there. No, it's going to be boring now. All right, but I'll try. Let's get serious. Uh, all right. We'll cut all that junk out anyhow. All right, exactly. We're just we're just going to pull it together here, and we're just going to try and be very serious. This, that's this what is, I've been trying to do my entire career. This is PBS, by the way. This is WAG. <laughs> That was the last time I worked with them. <laughs> you and me both, baby. This guy didn't, he didn't plug the show. He talked about a rap. <laughs> Any 
out. I'm ready to go down that hole. Like, here we go. <laughs> here we go. It's going to be a real disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> the time we get to this question, we're both going to be uninterested. <laughs> I can't talk anymore. <laughs> well, too hard. Okay. So, like, listen to me. In in, in this film, right, um, <laughs> he does talk about that. There is a conversation about this. There's a conversation. Oh, I can't. If I could do this, I can do anything. Go from that to this, and that is yeah. the difference between film and 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 directing Broadway. And you know, he 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 was he he walked the high wire act a lot. That's what he did, you know. And there were different highs on that high wire act. I mean, he talks about the way he thought about it. Sometimes, you know, like the difference. And he said, with film, it's like every day you come home and you say, this time I might really be. I've gone too far. It's, it's over. It's not going to work. But he didn't I've use that. He used far. it much more. He's no good. He's no good. I'm no good. This is not going to happen. Oh, there's this one thing. This one thing. Maybe if we cut that and move this over here. Oh, that looks pretty good. Oh, yeah. That's going to work. And you, you save yourself once more. Once more you save yourself. And, of course, it's a very attractive thing, but you can't do it in life. <laughs> yeah, right. That's a great line, and it's, and it's a great observation, too. Silkwood. Now, Silkwood, that was yeah. after he come, he does Silkwood after the seven years that he didn't do anything. That's right. right. He comes back with right. Silkwood. After everybody accused him of having lost his nerve, which was, of course, absurd. And, 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 and Angels in America, too. But he was an activist. I don't think people knew that about him, a lot of people, at least of of, of later generations, people who followed his well, career. Well, no, I mean, I think what they didn't know, in fact, I didn't know, and that was surprising to me because I kind of got to the feeling that I thought I knew so much about Mike and Elaine, but I did not know that they had gone to Selma to entertain the, the marchers. Right. And they went down there under a lot of fear. There was a lot of fear because there was a lot of people being beaten up and even some kidnapped. And uh, they went and they performed and they were just, uh, it was very courageous, but they felt it was the right thing to do. But he, and they did it. Right, but he took on projects like Silkwood activism. He took on projects like well, Angels yeah. in America. So Silkwood was a, an important thing because it really did show that, you know, a, a whistleblower could change the world or certainly, certainly change uh, an industry. And uh, sadly, of course, uh, it looked like she was uh, done away with because she did just that. But she, at least he made her somewhat of a, a hero, and she certainly was. Yeah, we talk about that, and, and, and I think that's important. But <clears throat> he was many, he was so multifaceted. And, and here's where I want to go with that thought, and that is, was there an edge to him? Listen, let me take this out with you. A power to him? Was he at times unnerving? Was he simply a nice guy? You know what I said in the beginning to different people, we are different things. Was he DJing all of the above? Be, let, let, me finish, be, let me take it out. Let me take it out. You can be that successful and that powerful and also be that nice all the time. I mean, many of us are not that successful, not, not that powerful, and not very nice at times either. So, I mean, I think there was a shadow side. Everybody has it. Fortunately, I never saw it addressed to me, and uh, and uh, and I never actually saw it. But I'm sure that you know that at times it it must have read its head. When you when you when you're in charge, when you have that much power, you're going to find enemies because some people are either envious or jealous or angry because you didn't hire them or you fired them or what might or what it might be. I mean, and I think you have to develop as a director the hide of a rhino. 
I really think you must. Now, I never saw Mike cruel. I never saw him nasty. But I, I would never say that. I don't know. I can't answer. I don't know. I, I, I never saw it. The one thing I will say, I've never met anybody who knew him in the biz or talked about him who didn't say only lovely things about him. You don't always yes. hear that. And I'm talking about, you know, in private, you know, on yes. camera, that's one thing. Everybody jumps on the bandwagon when there's a star, but off camera. And that always fascinated me about him. Fascinating, fascinating, yes. fascinating. But here's, here's another place, another rat hole. He said something in this that, that touched me deeply. It would touch anybody. And he's talking about winning the Academy Award and then going back to the Beverly Hills Hotel. And feeling so empty. Wow. Yes. Well, you know, if you're a reasonably thinking person, how much can you uh, get excited about it? It's wonderful. The moment is terrific. But like everything that we do in life, we get excited. But how long can you savor it? I mean, and also, it's reasonably superficial. It's wonderful. It's, a, it's a, you know, you're recognized by your peers, and it's a great moment. But how long can it last? I mean, it's almost like... Uh, I'm sure I, I've never done drugs, but I'm sure the high doesn't go on that long. So uh, I don't know. Can I just I, tell you one thing? Sure. I, I, just once. <laughs> just once. Wouldn't it be nice to get that? But you've had it. To get that feeling just once. I can't even imagine. Uh, we didn't talk in depth about Elaine May, who directs the film. Her first in what? Twenty nine what what years. Would you like to know about her? Well, I'd like to spend a couple of hours with her. I think she's fascinating and beautiful. Even. At this point she's in her life, some, right? She's a wonderful, wonderful person, and has been my dearest friend for many, many years. Um, uh, her talent is extraordinary. Her genius. Her, she, no one can make me laugh the way she does. Mm. And uh, the, the the ideal dinner for me used to be: I would sit at my home the head of the table, to my left was Elena, to my right was Mike, and I just sat there and I just thought, this is nirvana. Uh-huh. It doesn't get better than this. This is two people who can talk about anything, anything you could bring up, They, one of them or both of them would know. So it was great. I mean, I, I just thought it was, I remember once, so many years ago, so many years ago, that they started doing an improv in front of me that was so hysterical, which was, as many, many years ago, they, they, they were calling the emergency room, and the, the voice got on and said, if your leg is broken, press one. <laughs> if you're bleeding, <laughs> bleeding profusely, press two. <laughs> and they went through this emergency room, six or seven buttons <laughs> of how you were falling apart. <laughs> and I just remember it so well. Oh, God, that was such a funny evening. It's really, um, their per- so, the, both of their perception, so amazing, right? <laughs> that's right. And also the ability and to yours. put your finger literally and figuratively <laughs> on the society's craziness, the craziness of what was going on or goes on. I mean, I remember they they did a whole thing on the scandal of Charles Van Doren and 21, and it was just hysterical. I mean, they just, they would pick out things that were going on in the society, and my God, if they were around now as a comedy team, they, would, they wouldn't even know where to begin. Oh my God, the it's a field day. Trumps and the cruise. Oh, can you imagine? Oh my God, I'd like to hear that. Yeah. I really would love to hear that. How did you Me get her, too. yeah, right? How did you get her out of, uh, to do this after 29 years of not taking on directing a project? You mean Lane? Yeah. Well, 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 I showed her the interview, 
I said, I really want, at first I said, would you do an interview with me? She said, yep, you know, I, I won't. I don't do any interviews. <laughs> I said, will you watch the mics? She said, sure. So she watched Mike and she said, oh my golly, he's so relaxed. He's really telling you things I've never seen him do except in private. I said, well, I'll tell you what then. Why don't you direct it? And she paused for one beat and said, okay, I will. Now, that means very little to most people. To me, I had been trying for years to get it direct years and she said okay i will and she did so i i'm i was uh hats over the windmill i was so happy uh about the fact uh, that that she would do that and and she she was just terrific i mean she would take things and see things in the interview that i would have i could have had two lifetimes i wouldn't been able to put together so it was great to have her as, as a collaborator don't talk about my rats when you say hats over the windmill <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's not. I mean, a hat over the windmill is not I as gross as a right down a hole. I just want to say. And I didn't make it. And wait a second. I didn't make it as part of a question. I just, I just, I just snorted. You have the nerve to compare my hat to your rat? <laughs> See how we we rhyme at the end of our interview too? Hat, rat, hot rat. Cat, that <laughs> listen to me, Julian. I love you, and you are coming oh, back, whether you. you like it or not, because we're going to start to get in that brain of yours. This is, you're too good. You're just terrific. I'm ready. Call next week. We'll do another <laughs> one. I'll be in Sarasota. So what the hell? Let's do it. You'll be right in my alley. All right, listen to me. I'll Last be looking. Po- I'll be looking all over for the, <laughs> the rat. <laughs> I better not tell my wife. That no, we're listen going, to this. No, no. We're going, my, going to the water, no less. Uh, I'm oh, going to tell you a quick Jewish story. My grandmother used to say to me all the time, my little Vansa. And I used to think, oh, she loves me. What an endearing thing. I love you. It must mean I love you. And years later, like I'm like grown, and I find out yes. your, it, your little Vansa is your little cockroach. <laughs> <laughs> well, my grandmother used to call me a Vilda Haya. <laughs> Which means? Tell everybody. A, a wild, a wild animal. <laughs> <laughs> And they wonder why us Jewish people are how we are. Listen to me. You knew them all these years. You've seen them come. God knows you've seen them go. And, and in the annals yeah. of cultural history, let's get serious in the last question. In your, in your mind, just how important yeah. will Mike Nichols be in, in, in the annals of history for us? What's well, his I enduring hope, legacy? I, I, I hope that this show, A, is helpful in letting people know they knew the films he did or maybe the plays he did but not who he was as far as this, the world is concerned i mean i still think the graduate is one of the most uh, it really changed the way movies were looked at to take a man like dustin who was clearly not a handsome tall blonde whatever uh make a man like that a movie star uh that changed movies just that way but they take an american director making an american film but of course with european background and shining a light on the society we were living in and mike never thought the movie was about a generation gap it, it was so interesting that it became about a generation gap because the media jumped on that but it wasn't he was making a movie about a young man drowning in material objects and material things but it became the generation gap, and as you saw in the film, we we hit that hard because he says once once it gets it gets caught up in this kind of clearly two word generation gap generation gap, he let it go. He can't start fighting it; it just let it go. But he didn't believe it, and uh, I think 
that movie in itself, if you've done nothing else, if you just made that film, you should be, be remembered. But I think all we, we never really discussed Angels in America. What a triumph. What he did, put that cast together of Pacino and Meryl Streep. And not only that, but to have this incredible hour after hour, beautiful film winning 11 Emmys, which was at that time the most any miniseries ever won. Uh, those two alone, before we mentioned Carnal Knowledge or, or, or Silkwood or Working Girl, but uh, no, I think he'll be remembered as a great filmmaker and as a great director, and I hope as a terrific human being. On November 19th, 2014, Mike Nichols died of a heart attack in the apartment he shared with his fourth wife, journalist Diane Sawyer. He lives forever in the body of work he leaves behind and in the intimate portrait brilliantly painted Friday, January 29th at 9 p.m. when PBS premieres Mike Nichols' American Masters with new interviews with Meryl Streep, Tom Hanks, Steven Spielberg, Dustin Hoffman, Alec Baldwin, Paul Simon, and more. The film produced by my guest today, Mr. Julian Schlossberg and directed by Mike Nichols' partner in comedy, Elaine May. Nichols launches the 30th anniversary season of 13's American Masters series. For more information, visit www.pbs.org slash WNET slash American Masters. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Helen Cancer Jane Show, a production Resec LLC. Associate producer, Suzanne Probst. Music.